<laughs> fucking dog be ruining my podcast. <laughs> or he'll be our start. <laughs> you should hold, hold, please. Welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Anne, and I took the day off, and it was great. And I'm Drea, and I'm currently taking ideas to figure out how to quit my job and drink wine all the time. Let me know your thoughts. So let's start with our recurring segment, Cheers and Jeers. My cheers this week is to libraries. They are free. They are beautiful. They are a public good. They save me tons of money because I only have to pay fines instead of actually buying books. I went to a library today. It was glorious. I carried home way too many books and they were quite heavy. So it's also a workout. And my jeers this week is sleep. I sleep is rough right now. I feel like I'm trying to like, I feel like I'm getting a lot of sleep, but I don't feel like I am rested, if you know what I mean. So cheers, cheers to sleep and whatever's going on. Well, you know, one, it's hot, right? Mm-hmm. It, I'm I sleep, but when you wake up sweaty, unless you have a good reason for waking up sweaty. Mm. Being hot is not a great reason. Uh, it's hard to get sleep. Also, um, the world's a shit show. So there's that. It's Keep, true. You know, I mean, another like remedy for that is wine drinking, which is why we're all here. So what are you cheersing and jeersing this week? I have, against my will, gotten sucked into watching the Olympics, and my cheers is an honor to this age-old tradition, and it is to Simone Biles for putting her mental and physical health first, something that women really aren't conditioned to do. Like, oftentimes, we're told to do the exact opposite and put everything else and all of our external obligations first. And, you know, good for her. Good for her for showing us what it means to really be a GOAT. Uh, I'm so proud of the way she handled herself. And it was it was nice to see people really rally around her, too, and respect the choice she made and be grateful for pointing out that, you know what, some things are just more important. So cheers to Simone Biles. And my jeers uh, is also directly related to this. Cheers to the patriarchy, the fucking patriarchy. Do you have a a specific example here or just in general? I'm just going to wrap everything into the patriarchy this this episode. Good. You know, the anti-Simone Biles-ness, the, uh, she should have competed, the, uh, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers. Capitalism, let's throw that in there. Throw that in there. Uh, Yeah, all of it. Oh, Jeff Bezos, he can come along. I know he was your jeers last time, so we can continue to just be like, fuck that guy. (laughs) My once and forever jeers. I was like, I probably can't jeers Jeff Bezos for a third episode in a row. But also, seriously, man. I mean, I thought about 
it as my jeers. And I was like, man, Anne's already like taken that thunder a couple times. And, you know, considering all the shit that you gave me for always wanting to drink with Anthony Bourdain in my dreams, I was like, fine, I'll be a bigger, better person about it if I have to be. I do not want to drink with Jeff Bezos. No. So this week, we are mixing things up, and today we are featuring a orange wine that is also from Sardinia. So we've got kind of an island Escitalian wine, and it's going to be a fun orange wine. And we were trying to think about what to do for our shenanigans segments, and Anne had a great idea to tell like dad jokes basically just full disclaimer everyone we're not proud we're just we're just here all right for yourself you're welcome everyone (laughs) so Anne, what did the grape say when it was crushed what nothing it just let out a little wine okay well what happens when oranges get into a fight uh, I want to say something with pulp. Things get juicy. Oh, I see. It's like the real housewives of fruit situation. Got it. <laughs> I do kind of feel like your answer of like they get beaten to a pulp would have been slightly more clever. That's well, why we're not dads. Also, like I'm slightly more violent than a child probably. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> All right. How does a wine drinker hear about the next best brand? I don't know. Heard it through the grapevine. No. How long you gonna be mine? Honey, honey, yeah. (laughs) We meet all your Spotify needs right here on the podcast. Speaking of which, why did the Orange's song receive a negative review? Uh, It wasn't appealing. It wasn't original. Orange-inal. Orange, no. <laughs> okay, what do you call a wine hangover? Bad sour grapes. The grape depression. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I know, that was a little dark. That was a little dark. <laughs> she says that she calls the pharmacy to refill her antidepressants. <laughs> Maybe this will cheer you up. What is a vampire's favorite fruit? I mean, this one seems real obvious, so I'm not going to answer it. You just say it. It's- Blood orange. I do like that one. I'm not. <laughs> Why do we enjoy wine jokes on this podcast? These were really easy, simple girls. <laughs> because they're divine. That's kind of dumb, but go on. <laughs> classic, classic. Hey, I think there might be someone at your door. Um We'll pause the podcast. Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Orange, you glad we told all these stupid jokes? (laughs) That's That's my favorite. That's the one where I was like, we got to tell this one. I actually wrote that one myself. (laughs) I mean, all right. (laughs) You're all welcome. (laughs) I was feeling really good that day. (laughs) Orange, you excited for this wine, Drea? 
I am so excited for this wine. I am a huge orange wine fan, and we have talked about doing featuring an orange wine on the podcast forever, like since we started planning out episodes. So we finally got to it. It's a perfect time, I think, to really start thinking about solid orange wines. We're getting into August. So now's a good time to really get into some orange wines. And you actually introduced orange wines to me. I had never had an orange wine or heard of an orange wine until we were out drinking one day and you picked this absolutely gorgeous, delicious bottle. Um, And since then, I have just, I've really liked this, this style. Yeah. And orange wines have really been uh, some of my, what I call gateway whites. And so I was definitely one of those bitches who was like, drink white wines is for losers. I mean, I was also one of those bitches who like bought two buck chuck by the case though. So don't listen to me. I don't know anything, but um, orange wines were some of the, the early whites that I, I white adjacent, shall we say that really opened my eyes to different styles of winemaking And also got me really heavily into the natural wine world. And we'll talk about why that is a bit during this episode too. So what are we drinking today, Andrea? We are drinking uh, Bousset, which is from Azenda Vitivinicola. And I am sorry to all our Italian friends because I am hideously butchering that I'm sure Uh, but this is a white wine blend that is coming out of Sardinia so it is a natural wine and the reason we selected is we're really committed I think Anna and I to bringing orange orange wines to the masses Uh, and we've had a lot of viewers demand that we feature an Italian wine so we're overdue we apologize uh, despite the fact that I just completely butchered that language we love Italians and all things Italian and so we're excited to feature this wine in addition this is a wine that neither Anne nor I have had ever together or independently so we've both had orange wines we've both had different italian wines but this is a bottle that neither one of us have have ever opened until this moment so it's exciting cutting edge stuff the other thing that's really cool about this um, particular wine is Bousset actually means skins so it's a perfect orange wine for us to feature since we're gonna really get into the skin of it uh so this bottle Price point is about 24 bucks. Uh, so it's, you know, definitely obtainable and accessible. And it has an ABV of 12.5%. So in that, in that comfortable range that we've really been digging all summer long. And again, just as a reminder, a lot of your natural wines are going to have a slightly lower ABV um, just because of the way that the, they're processed. So keep, and because we drink them young. So keep that in mind. Um, this one definitely kind of fits that mold. So what can you tell me about orange wines in general? I feel like there is a little bit of a secret that we have revealed on this podcast, which is it's all about the skin contact. Yep. So shockingly, everyone, orange wine is not made from oranges. This has nothing to do with fruit, in fact, other than grapes. By definition, orange wine is a type of white wine that's made by leaving the grape skins and seeds in contact with the juice 
um, during that early tank process. And that's what creates a deep orange hued finished product. So these wines, because they're getting that skin contact, they tend to be more robust, more bold than your average white wine. So we talk about white wines and certainly the whites that we have featured on this show as being, you know, crisp, sea salt, citrus notes, fresh cut grass, different things like that. These wines the orange wines, we're going to talk about them as, you know, wines that are closer to a white that's gone through malolactic fermentation, um, like a Chardonnay or uh, a red. So they're going to have a lot more structure. Um, They're going to have a velvety texture. These wines tend to have very big flavor profiles that linger On the palate, um, they can even develop tannins because of that robustness. And then when you get into flavor profiles, you're going to find flavors like jackfruit, honey, hazelnut, Brazil nut, ripe apple, wood, juniper, sourdough, um, that kind of sourness that you find in like ciders or fruit beers, things like that. So a lot of that has to do with the skin contact and how long those skins are in the, the tank with the wine. One of the things to note about orange wines, and, and if you're, you know, if you're confused and you're like, what the fuck are you two talking about? That's cool. That's totally chill. That's why we're here. Um, because orange wines are still relatively rare. You don't see them on a ton of wine lists, uh, especially at restaurants, for example. In the States, they're not as popular but many countries are now have a growing interest in this particular style of winemaking, especially when it comes to natural wines. Um, but the history of orange wine is actually really fascinating. The term orange wine was originally co- coined by a British wine importer named David Harvey when he used it to describe a particular style of non-interventionalist white winemaking, which this is. So um, the trademark of orange wines is that low intervention process, which is why so many natural producers are making them. Right. Because it's already aligned with what they were interested in doing and sort of the values of the winemaker. Exactly. So, you know, kind of letting the fruit do its thing, um, not really uh, producing a lot of additives, you know, kind of letting the character of whatever those grapes are going to produce come out in the finished product. And this is a tradition that goes back pretty far. So the process of orange wine making is actually an ancient process, but it's only really gained traction as a modern winemaking technique in the last 20 years or so. Um, But we can look as far back as like 5,000 years ago in the region that is now modern day Georgia, the country and not the state, uh, where wines were fermented in these huge subterranean vessels called Kavri and were originally closed and sealed with stones and beeswax. So it's kind of um, like an amphora, you know, the Greek amphora is the clay vessels, um, but these were, you know, larger and they use that stone and the beeswax to kind of keep everything inside so the wines could age. Um, So there is a very large tradition of orange winemaking 
in those parts of the world. Uh, and then, of course, the Italians have really run with it, uh, especially in northeastern Italy along the border of Slovenia. Slovenia itself is... Um, one of the larger producers of orange wines. You're starting to see orange wines pop up a lot in places like Spain um, as well. Let's see, I've had the orange wines from Spain, Greece, Hungary, Georgia, Slovenia, Croatia is another one. So that kind of area sweeping down and then Italy is where you're starting to see a lot of that production happening. And in Italy in particular, the orange wine making process was really popularized by a winemaker named uh, Josco. I feel like, again, that's wrong. Gravner, who first attempted an orange wine in 1997. Uh, So the Italians have been, you know, practicing the art of making orange wines on a much larger scale since the late 90s or so. And of course, orange wines are now gaining traction in the U.S. thanks to the natural wine movement. So some of your more experimental producers are um, using this particular technique. And we see a lot of it in kind of these unexpected places. So New York has a large production of orange wine. Uh, There are a number of urban wineries in the Austin, Texas area that are making orange wines. And then the urban wineries up in the Bay Area of California, quite a few of them have orange wines. Knowing that, you know, it's all about the skin contact. How do you, what's the process for making a, a orange wine? Is it just taking white wine grapes through the red wine process? What's the deal? So to make an orange wine, you first, you take the grapes and you crush them and you put them in a large vessel. So again, this is usually a vat of some sort. So it's either a steel tank or it's cement or it's ceramic. And then you typically leave the fermenting grapes alone for It can be anywhere from just like with uh, a rosé, a couple of hours to over a year um, in the case of some orange wine. So it really depends on, you know, what kind of depth of flavor and tannins the winemakers want to develop. One of the things I think is really interesting is as I've, you know, traveled and have tasted a lot of orange wines. And this also rings true for pet gnats um, in many areas. They're experiments. So, you know, the winemaker will take a particular number of grapes from that year's harvest that they're going to make. They'll take a number of those grapes and, you know, make their usual wine And then they'll do an experiment with, you know, maybe a single tank to see how it comes out. And if those grapes are, and and the terroir and everything involved in that is going to yield a really solid orange wine product in the end. So some turn out great. Some are a little suspicious. You know, that's the thing with the, the natural wine industry is there is a lot of variation, right? And you're kind of, um, saying a hope and a prayer and hoping it all works out in the end. But, you know, for the most part, it's a very similar process to rosé. Since so many of these orange wines, though, 
are natural wines, they tend to use little or no additives and some producers don't even add any yeast. So because of this, they tend to taste very different from regular white wines and have that kind of sour taste and nuttiness that comes from the oxidation. So that's something to look for in an orange wine. I don't find them particularly sour. A lot of the the literature out there about orange wines uses that as kind of a flavor profile term. I think of them more as robust. I think of them as highly structured. There's depth to them that resonates really nicely. And that you do get some of the that like sourdough or, or breadiness to them a little bit as well. So yeah, I think they're delicious. I'm thinking back to our conversation with my mom where she sort of said, you know, I'm not really into white wines. And we talked about kind of like what could be a gateway. And I feel like an orange wine might be the right choice that it's got, it's got sort of the body to stand up to what she's looking for. Yeah. I really think they're, they're kind of the best of both worlds because, you know, they've got that nice freshness and deep late summer fruitiness that's really refreshing this time of year, but they also have enough body and enough texture to them that there's something really comforting about that glass. You know, there's so much interesting information about orange wines. I've really tried to rein it in this week. Plus, I know that we'll cover another orange wine um, on a future episode because they're just that great. But if you do want some more information about orange wines and the process, I highly recommend Wine Folly's article on orange wine. Um, and we'll put that link in the description. And also um, Simon J. Wolf's 2018 book called Amber Revolution. So this book follows Wolf's journey into learning all the mysteries of orange wine. It also has a great producer's guide. So you can kind of learn a little bit about the different winemakers. So they're making orange wines and kind of get your wish list going. So if you're into skin contact white wines, definitely pick this book up. So tell me a little bit more about this specific orange wine. What What's going on with the buche in our glass? Okay, so the buche is a blend of three different varietals, Canono, Vermentino, and Nasco. And so Canono is the Sardinian name for a very common grape known as Grenache in Spain or Grenache in France. So this is something that, you know, we've definitely, wait, have we had a Grenache? Last week's rosé, wasn't that all Grenache, your your can? Mine was Grenache, you're right, you're right. My can that I fucked up, I hope everyone enjoyed the apology tour. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, so yeah, this is basically Grenache, first grape. Uh, This is wildly different than that, though. I mean, you want to talk about like the things you can do with the one kind of grape. Well, yeah, I mean, it all depends on where it's growing, how it's being grown, what it's blended with. There's a really popular California blend like the Central Coast called the GSM, um, which is Grenache based as well. And you can hit up 
six different vineyards on one road in Paso Robles. All of them will have a GSM. You can try them all and they will all be different. But um, Grenache is one of the grapes in this particular bottle that we're drinking today. Vermentito is a light-skinned white grape variety that is primarily found in Italian wine. And it's widely planted um, in the Italian islands. You find them in Corsica a little bit, and then the Piedmont region as well. So really, you find this this grape, it's pretty common in Italy. And then uh, Nasco. So Nasco is a white Italian grape variety that is grown primarily in Sardinia, and it is a pretty ancient grape. So it is one of those Italian indigenous grapes um, that you don't see a whole lot outside of Italy and is again, primarily used as a blending grape. And so that's our mix. And I think it's such a cool blend because you've got, you know, the, the Grenache, which is very representative of that kind of Mediterranean region. And then you've got the Vermentino, which is, you know, very much identified with, with Italy. And then the Nasco, which is really particular to Sardinia. So I think that that blend tells such a cool story itself. And you know how much I like narrative when it comes to wine. So I'm just really into all of this. <laughs> Wines, books, podcasts. Oh, just... Look for narratives everywhere. I was able to find some like cool information about the particular vine, not just the grapes, but the vines that are on this vineyard that make up this bottle. Um, so the Vermentino and the Nasco vines are about 13 years old and the Grenache ones are about 30 year old vines. And so again, you've got that cool blend of, you know, an older, more established vine and then really young vines um, that are bearing fruit. So I think that that's another cool feature of this bottle. Uh, in terms of harvest, all three of these grapes that go into this bottle are harvested in August. So the Nasco tends to be harvested on the 10th, the Vermentino on the 12th, and the Grenache on the 19th. So the Grenache, they leave on the vine for just about a week longer than the other two. So it can develop those sugars a little bit more and kind of round out the sourness in uh, the, the blend. But I thought it was awesome that I'm like, oh, look at that. I mean, I don't know why I'm surprised. Harvest season is really now August to like early October. If you want to celebrate the harvest, get yourself a bottle of this. Listen to this podcast. By the time this comes out, you'll still have about a week before the Kananoa is harvested. Did I say that right? Uh, and and you can you too can celebrate. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Where was I? Oh, okay. So yeast, this bottle does use yeast, but they use native yeast. So it's, some people call it wild. Some people call it feral. It is natural native yeast though, but it does have yeast, which is why you get a little bit of that fresh baked bread um, flavor on the finish. And then in terms of, you know, the actual process of this bottle and this blend, uh, the Vermentino and the Nasco are left to ferment with the skins on for two nights. And then when the Grenache harvest follows a few weeks later, about 10 days later, the grapes are quickly pressed after only a few hours on the skin. Then the two tanks are blended and left to mature 
in cement tanks for a minimum of six months. When the wine is bottled, it is unfined and unfiltered. And so, again, that's something that we see with a lot of natural wines. And, you know, fair disclosure, and I think we talked about this with the pet nat, if you see sediment at the bottom of your bottle, it's fine. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to kill you. Um, It doesn't mean the wine is bad. That's just a byproduct of the aging process and the winemaking process. So it's fine. What I recommend if you're drinking a natural wine is just stand it up on the bottom. And, you know, I keep a lot of natural wines on my wine rack, so they're on their side. But before I serve them, I stand them up. Um, and if, you know, if they're white or a pet nat or a rosé, they go in the fridge. And if they're red, I'll stand it up for a while. And then depending on what it is, I may or may not decant it. I mean, looking at this bottle, at least mine, I think it looks fairly clear. So again, like your mileage will vary depending on the bottle, the year, et cetera. But yeah. this one, which I think is the 2019 is, is pretty clear. Yeah, mine is pretty clear as well. So, Anne, I know um, you were very excited about this wine because of the label. It is such a beautiful label. It's full ombre. It's it's gorgeous. It the the colors are sort of it goes from kind of this dark sort of purplish gray into a yellow that almost matches the wine itself. And then into a red, just like if you were looking at a sunset, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And then it's got this lovely little compass design on it as well. Just a really attractive bottle. Like this is the kind of bottle where if you are looking to impress some people at a dinner party, bring this bottle, they will think you are classy as shit. Yup, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, don't look for a ton of information on this label. Just enjoy how pretty it is. Rhea did the research so you don't have to. Exactly. You're all welcome. (laughs) So I think you mentioned Sardinia as the location of one of the grapes. And that is where this winery is, correct? Or winemaker? So the Nosco is... um, an ancient grape that's grown um, primarily in Sardinia and the winery itself is in Sardinia as well. And so quick geography lesson, Sardinia is located off the west coast of Italy and is the second largest island in the Mediterranean Sea after Sicily. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the island and their winemaking. So since about the mid-18th century, Sardinia has been one of Italy's five autonomous regions. And so similar to like Spain, where you have like the Canary Islands, right? They're part of Spain, but they also have an autonomous government. The same sort of idea here. And it, but it's the separation from the mainland that has really kind of led to the island developing its own culture and identity that's somewhat removed from the Italian mainstream. There's its really own sense of Sardinian pride. And what's really interesting to me about Sardinia is that. In Sardinia, wine is much less culturally and historically ingrained than in the Italian mainland. So wine production and consumption on a larger scale has really developed only in the last century or two, but it wasn't a real part of the ancient ancestral traditions of the island. So I think, you know, that's interesting. It's kind of this symbiotic relationship right between the history of the island and the history of the mainland and 
you can think of Sardinian wines as kind of the meeting in the middle between those two cultural discourses. So again, it's a narrative I really like. (laughs) Today, though, the wine regions of Sardinia include vineyard areas that span across the entire island, which I also think is super cool and only makes me want to go there more. So it's a pretty substantial area. They're producing a lot of wine and most of it does stay there now. Um, Similar to what you're seeing like in Spain and in Greece, you know, the, the wines that are produced on the islands tend to stick around for local consumption. And if they make it to, the, to, you know, continental Europe, they make it to the country that they're kind of attached to. And let's talk a little bit about the terroir and the climate. So Sardinia is a Mediterranean island, um, which means it's got that ideal Mediterranean climate. There are hot, dry summers and rainy, wet winters. Um, Drought is prominent on the island, especially on the south coast, so irrigation is often necessary. You don't see a ton of dry farming out there for that reason. And temperatures vary significantly throughout several different parts of the island. So you do have like a wide range of mountain climates. So again, in the cooler areas and in the north, you're going to have wines that are, you know, more fresh, kind of fruit-driven whites with lighter, more delicate aromas and good acidity. Um, And then you're in the south, you're going to get some of those deeper, more robust wines that benefit from a hotter, drier climate. Uh, Soils also, there's a lot of variation. So everything from granite to limestone to sandstone and mineral rich soils as well. The wines here have an incredible amount of diversity and you're going to see lots of different styles if you were to taste across the island. It's really exciting too, to think that you, you know, even though we're having this wine right now, we could have another bottle next week or next year and from the same region, from the same area and experience something completely different. So it, it, feels really exciting to me that there's so much possibility and potential in exploring this area and really getting to know it. Yeah, I love that. I love that element of surprise. To your point, though, Anne, I mean, one of the things that I read pretty consistently in my research is that wine experts agree that Sardinia's terroir is full of possibility. There's really nowhere to go but up, even though they're already producing quite a bit of wine. The terroir is just so rich that it holds so much promise for further expansion of the wine industry. And frankly, for really cool experimental wines like this Bousset that we're featuring today, it's going to be really exciting to see what this region does in the next 20 years or so. And, you know, I've I mean, I love them, so I'm slightly biased, but I've been saying, and you know, because I won't shut up about this, that I feel like island wines, like island produced wines from the Mediterranean are just like on the cusp of becoming the next huge thing. They're delicious. They're interesting. The price points, I think, are, you know, highly accessible and attractive. So I just, I I would love it because then they would, 
export more more to us peasants here in the U.S. and I could drink the things that I love all the time. Again, if you want to be on trend, if you want to be first in line, get on the island wine trend now. So let's talk a little bit about the winemaker. His name is Sergio Loy, and he is a fourth generation um, traditional Sardinian winemaker whose family winery from the early 1900s has always practiced no chemical farming, minimal intervention farming. His vineyards are located on the island's um, southeast area, which is pretty sparsely populated. And the soils are composed of crumbling granite. They're coastal. There are rugged, dry cliffs in that area. And so you there is like a good potential for some nice minerality in these wines. And yeah, he seems like a pretty hilarious dude, to be quite honest with you. There's this really funny story I found. I mean, it's kind of gross, but I'm going to tell it anyways. So I'm terrified about where this is going. There is a reporter who went out to visit Sergio, and this reporter had requested to eat the infamous and illegal, I might add, Sardinian cheese called Casu Marzu. Casu Marzu, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is a spreadable cheese that is made, it's sheep's milk cheese, and it's made in the sheep's own stomach. So that's, that's one. No, no, no. <laughs> I thought, I heard a click. I was like, does she pass out? Oh God. <laughs> uh, and the cheese becomes extremely creamy. Like, fuck your triple cream brie like this shit is supposed to be ridiculous but that creaminess is due to the colony of live maggots that live there and act as this like army of little blenders so they're constantly like turning this cheese to make it extra creamy you don't eat the maggots. You eat around the maggots and enjoy the fruits of their labors. So no, thank you. I will pass. Well, this will not be in my eating section, in my pairings. So anyways, um, Sergio got this reporter this cheese and they're eating it. And as the reporter says, Sergio is smiling as he's like lathering this Casimarzu on just some nice, crispy, locally made flatbread. And as they were eating this and talking, Sergio actually opened a bottle of the Busse. And he said, you need a wine that goes down by the bucket to eat maggot-filled Casimarzu but also a wine that has enough character to stand up to it. So if that's any indication of what we've gotten ourselves into, here we go. <laughs> I mean, let's find out if it lives up to it. I really hope it's better than that. <laughs> or do you? I mean, who knows better than the winemaker? Who knows? Who knows? It's impossible to say. So now that we've talked about the ins and outs of this bottle and apparently the ins and outs of sheep's stomach, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the bottle and the actual wine. So uh, I think the first thing we have to talk about is the color, right? Yeah. So just like 
orange wines are not made out of oranges. Not all orange wines are going to be sort of that like bright orangey color. I would say this is much more of like a rich yellow, definitely a darker yellow than many of the white wines we've had. Um, so it is richer in that way. If you're expecting orange, you're going to find need to find a different bottle. Yeah, this this is on the lighter end of orange. Remember, two of the grapes that go into this bottle are only on the skins for two days. And the last one, the Grenache, only spends two hours on the skin. So for an orange wine, it is rather light in color. Um, it honestly is the same hue to me as like an aged Chardonnay. It's got kind of a deep honey gold color to the wine, but there is still just like the slightest, slightest, slightest tinge of pale green in there, mm-hmm. kind of around the rim as you twirl your glass a little bit. So it's a really lovely color. And if you have some snotty friend who's like, oh my God, I only drink a Chardonnay. Hey, pop the sucker in a decanter, pour it into their glass. $5 says they're not going to notice and they're going to like this better. Just going to say, unless they think it's better. We really need to do a Chardonnay episode because I talk so much shit about it. Let's talk about the body and just like do a little swirl. I know we haven't done this in a while. You know, it's definitely got some body to it. It's got some legs. Um, takes a little while for it to run down the glass. Like you, you can tell that this wine is going to have a little bit more texture than your average everyday white that you've been slamming all summer. I'm sorry. Maybe it's the everyday white that I've been slamming all summer. Let's do the nose. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's give since we're already swirling. I think again, it might be just sort of how we have talked about it, but I'm getting such a feel of late summer. Like if you were standing in a wheat field and you can sort of smell like not the kind of fresh spring grass, but like like right on the edge of harvest about to be like rolled up into a hay bale smell. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of if you've ever gone apple picking when you're walking the orchards and you smell the ripe apples and pears and it's still kind of warm out. It's kind of that heavy summer air. I don't know. There might be like a campfire off in the distance. that's kind of drifting towards you. The, the, the scent, not the flames, not the flames. There's a woodiness to it too. Almost like cedar, toasted nuts, toasted pecans. It's definitely a deeper, richer bouquet than what we've seen on our other whites. Um, I don't get, for example, any citrus here. Yeah. Maybe like um, apricots like late season apricots or dried apricots, dried apricots. This is so funny because part of what I was, I was thinking ahead to like the pairing section. And these are some of the things that I was thinking about pairing is like dried fruit, nuts, like sort of a a charcuterie board with some of those ingredients as well, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Some, some cheap gut cheese with that. Yeah. Gonna, gonna stick with my Miyoko's cashew cheese. Thank you very much. No sheep guts or maggots required. Fine. Be that way. (laughs) More for you. Mm. I'll put anything in my mouth at least once. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking Uh, of which, you want to put this in your mouth? I do want to put this in my mouth. (laughs) All right, let's go for it. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I love an orange wine. I really do. What do you love about it? What are you feeling? Okay, so I'm going to go back to the sheep gut cheese story for just a hot second. God. (laughs) Now, Anne's like, this bitch is doing this on purpose. No, but Sergio's whole point was that orange wines have some standing power, right? That they are big and bold and complex and they deserve a certain amount of attention. And I think that this bottle is a really great indication of that. Because for me, what hits me immediately is the fruit. Like I get that big burst of bright pear and cherry and, you know, kind of late summer, almost overripe stone fruits, you know, like when you pick up a peach And even though you have a light touch, your fingers kind of slip into it a little bit and the juices start to run out and you've realized like, oh, this is going to be a really great experience. It's like that. It's, it hits you with that juiciness and then it kind of takes your, your palate on a ride and um, full disclosure. So we pulled this bottle out when we started talking about Sardinia because we were just both really, really eager. And my trick with orange wines, and this is how I always recommend you serve them is because they're so complex, you know, pull your bottle out of the fridge. You do, you do want to have a chill on these. And what I do though, is I open it, I pour out a glass and I just leave the bottle alone. I don't put it on ice. I don't put it back in the refrigerator. That first you know, sip is going to read different than a sip half an hour in and an hour in. It's going to keep evolving as the temperature rises in really interesting ways. And so now, yeah, I've had this bottle open for about, what what do you think, like half an hour, I'd say? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm getting way more of that velvety texture on the palate. I'm getting more of the nuttiness. That sourdough finish that I had first noticed is really mellowing out. So your wine's going to evolve as it warms up a little bit. And I highly encourage you to just let it, just let it do its thing. So that's what I'm getting. What are you getting in this glass? I think the fruit fruit forward feels very right. Velvety feels very right. I think I almost get this. I feel like I do get a little citrus in this at this point. I always think, I mean, this is where the orange finally shows up for me. It has sort of that richness and that flavor, not sort of like um, a Tropicana flavor, but I almost picture sort of like those um, burned orange peels that you see in drinks sometimes not my drinks your drinks but yeah or um like dried orange peel too. yes definitely orange peel because there's a little bit of that bitterness to yep. it yeah um, it still has like the richness i want to say of like citrus oil right yes are you getting tannins at all um i'm not getting any really Uh, you know I get the like velvety texture but the tannins I think if these had sat on if this wine had sat on the skins longer you would definitely see it like I I'm I'm looking at my wine rack and I have a um a skin contact um gruner on my rack right now like that's gonna have some some tannins because it was on the skins for a long time yeah I have an orange wine from Henry Lortana out of Baja. 
on my rack. I've had that before. That has tannins. That's got some, that's a, that's a heavy hitter, but this is, and those, and full just like those wines, I'm going to drink those in October. This though, the Bousse is like perfect for right now. Like I have to say, I feel like it is growing on me, which maybe is because I'm about halfway through my glass. I think when I first tasted it, I felt like, oh, this is a little overwhelming. This maybe it was the bitterness. Maybe it was like how much flavor there was, but it's really mellowing out um, in a way that I'm enjoying. Good. You know, one of the reasons I say leave it out, kind of drink your bottle through the different temperatures is figure out where you like it. Right. Some people are going to like this ice cold. Yeah. some people like their Chardonnay ice cold to each their own, I suppose. But, you know, when you find that temperature range, that's just like, yup, this is what I want in my life. Um, and really allows you to get that essence of the wine, you know, some experimentation on our end as drinkers and tasters is often needed too. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it though. So we kind of already started talking food a little bit. I definitely, I mean, again, vegan here, but I totally thought of like a charcuterie board with nuts, like walnuts and dried fruit. I think apricots would be great. I think even just sort of like raisins and cranberries could be really good. Um, and then, like I said, vegan, um, but a nice soft cashew cheese would be just lovely with this. Like some, again, something from Miyoko's, something from Tree Hill, not your Daya's. Uh, ever, but definitely not with this. I think that would be delicious with this. I could also even see pairing it with something with like a dill accent. Like I like to put dill and cucumbers and a soft cheese together on a cracker and call it dinner. Uh, This would be delightful with that, I think. Yeah, I, you know, so you're using like kind of the two key methods of pairings, right? Which is one, similar flavor profiles, right? So things Mm -hmm. like, and then two, contrasting flavor flavor profiles. And I love both of those approaches. Um, I totally agree with you on the charcuterie board. If you are not a vegan though, and are looking for animal product cheese pairings on my cheese board would definitely be something really creamy and delicious. St. Andre out of the United States has some amazing soft cheeses um, that have an ash rind that are really fantastic. Uh, I also love cowgirl creamery for these types of cheeses um, that's based up in Northern California. Cowgirl creamery is like the cheese I dream about from pre-vegan days. Uh, it's it's pretty up there. It if is, anyone was going to bring me back, it would be that. <laughs> brutal. Uh, and then for a hard cheese, I would do like a Manchego. I think that that would really pick up on the flavor notes here really nicely. So those would be my recommendations. If you're putting meat on that board, I would go with something more gamey. So my local... Um, cheese purveyor here in San Diego. I'm going to give a shout out to Small Goods. I love them. They're great. Uh, They carry really, really cool um, charcuterie items. They have wild boar salami. They have duck. They have lamb. 
I think that this is a wine that can stand up to some of those gamier meats for a entree type thing. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go a little further than the cracker. Pairing. <laughs> I would love, love to pair this wine with grilled octopus. And this is a huge internal struggle for me. So um, octopus is like one of my favorite things to eat. And I don't like, I want the full fucking tentacle. Like I'm a, I'm a horde person. I also really respect them because they're super smart and I think they're aliens and they're such rad animals, but they're so tasty. I'm a bad person. It's okay. <laughs> but like an oct- octopus, grilled octopus with like a treso reduction. I mean, I'm just losing my mind over what that pairing would be like. Maybe a little potato puree. I don't know. That's so funny because I was thinking for entrees, you know, besides the cheese and crackers. First, I thought Thai, possibly mm-hmm. just because I like Thai, but like something like a pad CU with a ton of vegetables would be delicious. And then when I was thinking about pasta and I was thinking about Italy, I was like, oh, something with mushrooms, again, almost prepared as like, an oyster substitute would be incredible. Yeah. I, you know, and mushrooms done right. So I like to get a really nice caramelization on my mushrooms. Like no one wants a fucking soggy mushroom. That would be amazing. Like a mix of like oyster mushrooms, lobster mushrooms. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, that sounds so good. We are going to cook so much when you come visit. I am so fucking excited. <laughs> Which I love because we also have a list of restaurants we're going to. So it's literally going to be nonstop food vacation, which is everything I live for. Uh, food food and Bev, food and Bev. It's all happening for us. Um, okay, so I think we are sufficiently hungry now. I uh, am. <laughs> so where where are we taking this bottle, though? What kind of situation are we, are we sharing this bottle in? Where are we taking it? Where's she going? Is she all dressed up? Where's she going? So I feel like it's really obvious to say poolside. I feel like we have said poolside all summer long. So I'm going to go a little different. I, so let me, let me paint this picture for you. We are in a field. We are still dressed very nicely, despite being in a field. There are tables. There is all of the food we have just described. We are having like a bougie, fancy harvest picnic. Um, Possibly I just want to go back to my family farm and do this, but we are, we are like outside. It's hot. It's evening. The fireflies are starting to glow. Everyone looks like a goddess and we're just living it up. Everyone, she means her and I. I just want to be. And everyone else. No one gets in unless they're up to dress code. Okay. Oh, we're inviting other people? Fuck me. Fine, I guess. (laughs) It's a big table. (laughs) Ugh. If it must be. (laughs) I I like this. I like this plan. I like this plan. Um, I really like the element of surprise. I like surprising people with all sorts of things. And so uh, this would be definitely a bottle that I would want to do at one of my, if I don't say so myself, very famous themed dinner parties. Excellent. (laughs) And I would 
definitely serve this with like a kind of gourmet sort of taco situation. Tacos are very important to California culture and very important to San Diego culture, but I love doing like a cultural mashup. And so I love making tacos with things like Spanish chorizo and sweet potatoes um, as a riff on like a potato taco or, you know, caramelized mushrooms and corn salsa. Things- I'm imagining your octopus in here somewhere. Yeah, the octopus is definitely going to be fucking there with the salsa verde. How did you know? But just, you know, lighting the chimenea, lots of candles. Now that we can have small intimate gatherings, a small intimate gathering, everyone looks snatched to the gods. We're drinking lovely wine. We're eating tacos. And what I love about this particular bottle is it's so unexpected. And I think a lot of people, unless they are, you know, deep into wine, this is going to be something that makes their tongue slap their brain a little bit. And I love that. I love being able to share those types of bottles with people. So this is definitely a social bottle. I say that as I am fully drinking it by myself, but I want to- We're together. Okay, fair, 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 fair. (laughs) First, so what are we playing? What's our soundtrack for our, our gatherings? I am doing something instrumental with like a lot of, Uh, acoustic guitar and truly I am only thinking of like the soundtrack to chocolate but whatever well I also have the soundtrack in mind oh really which one but it is so I guess it's not really a soundtrack it's a Spotify playlist from um the HBO show Los Spookies which first off if you have not seen Los Spookies everyone I don't like stop listen. What the fuck are you doing listening to us? Like go watch this show. It is so good. Uh, and it's like the soundtrack's just weird. It's just weird and funky and a mixture of English and Spanish. And it's, it's super rad, but it's got the same vibes as this wine. It's very like unexpected. It kind of just takes you on a little magical journey. Um, definitely some magical realism tones there. I would, that's what I would play. So I have a movie in mind to drink possibly the rest of this bottle with. Ooh. Um, oh. I have, I have been wanting to watch this for a long time. I haven't seen it. And again, sort of with, the dinner party that I have imagined in a field, I think it fits. I would be really interested in watching Midsommar and drinking this wine. God, this dinner party just took a very dark. Yeah. I don't want to have, I don't want to relive Midsommar, but I would be very interested in watching it from the safety of my New York apartment. In true Drash fashion, as soon as this dinner party is over, I'm kicking everyone the fuck out. There will be no movie screening. Take your goodie bag and get the fuck out. <laughs> All right. Once you've once you've kicked everyone out, what are you reading? Um, God, what am I reading? I really feel like something that's rooted in magical realism mm. needs to to go with this bottle, or a really, really solid, like, mystery. A solid mm. 
fun, you know, like something that's not too complicated. Like we're still in summer people. Let's just be completely real about who we are and where we are. Um, but so I've been reading some books by Ruth Ware recently, who's a mis- contemporary mystery writer out of the UK and they're well-written, they're entertaining. You can kind of breeze through them. There's twists and turns. The last one I read, I was literally like, oh shit, you don't say. So I, you know, and who knows, was that the wine talking? Impossible to say, but um, I like the idea of something that's going to surprise you. You could snuggle in with some Agatha Christie, you know, take it old school. So uh, who's the celebrity guest at your dinner party? And do you kick them out when you kick everyone else out? The person who came to mind is Tilda Swinton. Girl, yes, that is brilliant. And I would never kick her out, ever. No, No. also she would not even give a fuck if you tried to. (laughs) Nope. Yeah, I think it's me and Tilda and you and the other dinner guests. That's, fuck the other dinner guests at this point, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like Like I said, it's a big table. (sighs) We need for atmosphere here. Oh, fine. Can't we just like hang some cute decor or whatever? I'll bring a lantern. It'll be adorable. We don't need anyone else. (laughs) People are my atmosphere. So if you're inviting Tilda, I'm inviting Billy Porter. Oh, perfect. See, now we don't really need anyone else. (laughs) I feel like you're not picturing the large field that I have set up in my mind. I see the field. I see the field. You I just think the four of us are going to hang out in a field? Yeah, girl, you're the one who wants to watch Midsommar. What are you talking about? I'm inviting the whole cult. <laughs> I, I think we are the whole cult. That's what I'm trying to tell you. The, the call is coming from inside the house. If you would like to be part of our cult... Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at two girls in a great pod. <laughs> Slide into them DMs on uh, Instagram. Oh, you just said that. Jesus Christ. You- <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'll get this right one day. <laughs> um, you can also email us to join our cult at two girls in a great pod at gmail.com. No one has checked it in weeks, but it's fine. But um, seriously, if you want to join our wine cult and have this dinner party, uh, if you want to do a private Zoom tasting, if you uh, have another recommendation for a rad orange wine that you think we should be drinking, hit us up. We are here and listening and excited to hear from you this particular bottle um you it's pretty readily available at wine shops um both ann and i were able to find it pretty easily it's got good distribution in the u.s so yeah and we are very excited about our next episode um that's gonna be fun we are going to be recording live from Harvest in Paso Robles with our friends at Peachy Canyon. Uh, so look for that. And on our Instagram, we will be posting. We're going to do something new. Um, we've gotten a lot of requests to 
post the bottles before the podcast comes out so that people can play along and drink as we talk about them. So we're going to start this on Instagram, posting the bottles a week out. So you have a little bit time to find them. And then um, you can fully participate in all of our bullshit shenanigans. Also forces us to be on top of our game, which we need. We do. We do need that. We need we need babysitters or spankings or something. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this podcast has gone off the rails. <laughs> I mean, we've gone off the rails. Like, that's what's happened here. <laughs> it's August. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you all. I don't have mo- motivation. I don't have direction. I don't have anything. I have this. So you're I getting- just have this wine. <laughs> getting all of you're getting all of what i have to give right now in this moment (laughs) episode 12 the realness comes out (laughs) episode 12 ann and andrea finally reveal their true selves ann and andrea lose their minds a very special episode (laughs) all right until episode 13 then look at 13 all right everyone salute salute